0: to the IIEA's insights with me, Dan O'Brien. We have discussed the trend towards greater government intervention in economies in recent episodes. And today we're going to focus on one form of interventionism in one part of the world. In other words, we're looking at corporate subsidies in Europe. Joining us from the London School of Economics is Professor Stephanie Reichard, who has written extensively on this subject, among many others. Stephanie is Professor of Political Science at the LSE and is also the author of a book published in 2018 titled spending to win which focuses on the political gains to be had from giving taxpayers money to companies and industries stephanie you're very welcome to the institute virtually and many thanks for taking the time to join us
1: well thank you very much dan for having me i appreciate it and i appreciate the opportunity to speak about this very important topic today
0: so um stephanie rather than starting with the bigger picture just reading your book uh the issue of airbus came came up um Airbus is often used as an argument by those in favor of the um, subsidization of sectors and, 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 and particular companies as a, a case study, a good example of what the state can do and, and what Europe can do. Um, do you think that is that Airbus is a good uh, example? Is it, is it an industry that's benefited Europe? Is it an industry that's benefited global consumers? Um, any thoughts on, on the specific case of Airbus?
1: Airbus is an interesting case when we're thinking about subsidies and subsidy wars. So remember the Airbus subsidies were justified by this idea that there was a market failure, that the construction and the development of these big civil aircraft required so much capital. And there was such a long time that was going to pass between the investment of this capital and any potential returns that the markets wouldn't do that themselves. And therefore there was a need for state intervention. And so now in the context of thinking about green subsidies and the green transition, that's the same sort of questions that we'd want to ask. Is there a market failure? Have the markets failed to get the new technologies invented in the first place and or to diffuse them? And so that's sort of the analogy or the question that the Boeing case might lead us to ask, the Airbus case. The second point from that subsidy war is precisely that it was a subsidy war. We saw EU- providing support and then we saw the US providing support. And there was almost this tit for tat ratcheting up of government subsidies. And this subsidy war was fought in the shadow of the World Trade Organization. And that's very different than today. This was a subsidy war that was fought and litigated in the multilateral system through the World Trade Organization's dispute settlement process. That dispute settlement process is defunct now. Because the appellate body isn't functioning, we don't have that same multilateral framework to constrain, to control a subsidy war. So as we stand potentially on the precipice of a new subsidy war in green tech and green subsidies, the analogy with the Boeing Airbus subsidy wars breaks down a little bit because we don't have the WTO to litigate the dispute.
0: And how important on the subject? I was going to come to it a little bit later, but in terms of the WTO subsidies framework, how, how important was it in constraining subsidies over those decades where it was it was in place and and before um, this more recent, before the uh, the appellate body broke down what, five years ago? Um, how significant was it, and will it will its absence change things a lot? Do you think?
1: I think it was really significant, particularly in the Airbus Boeing case. This was a case of a subsidy war where we saw escalating subsidies, but there was an outlet, there was a release valve. You knew you could go to Geneva and litigate the case and sit down and talk and work it out. And so I think it was critically important in the Airbus Boeing example. And we see other cases where subsidies were brought to the WTO, complaints were filed, and the issue was resolved. And now, in the absence of the appellate body, that option simply isn't available anymore. And so that's a challenge. A further challenge is the fact that the United States in the Inflation Reduction Act has really thrown out the rules, right? In the Inflation Reduction Act, they have said in order to to get these subsidies, you have to meet local content requirements. That's an explicit violation of the WTO rules. And so that really undermines the multilateral framework that has existed for decades and that has constrained countries' subsidies and other protectionist policies.
0: So the Europeans have become, or some Europeans have become, extremely exercised by the Inflation Reduction Act. One, one would think China never existed in some in some ways. Um, how, as you say, it, it's it's very much a, in breach of the of the WTO uh, rules. How? significant a shift in the U.S. We spoke about the U.S. about four weeks ago on our, in an episode, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. Uh, but it, as, as it's the country you know best, as we say here in Europe, um, definitely have to get your views. How big a shift in the United States has there been on the issue of subsidies?
1: This is a serious shift. I mean, this is the big um, piece of legislation, the first time the United States is really trying to engage in uh, environmental legislation. So this is a big shift. It's also a big shift in the fact that they're blatantly saying we're not playing by the multilateral trading rules anymore. So it's a big big shift, both in terms of their stance on the environment, it's also a big shift in their stance on the multilateral trading rules and where they think subsidies fit within those two um, pieces of the puzzle, the environment and the WTO. So maybe if we wanna be optimists, maybe one thing that can come out of, the United States Inflation Reduction Act, and maybe Europe can lead the way on this, is by re-engaging in the debate about what the international subsidy rules need to look like. They need to be reformed in order to deal with China, in order to deal with the environment, and think about how we can use subsidies
0: going forward. Do you think there's any realistic prospect of the multilateral system fraying, uh, if not broken down uh, or certainly momentum towards expanding it to deal with the, the rest of the world is, is quite limited do you think there's much realistic prospect of a, of, a, of a multilateral agreement on subsidies
1: it doesn't look good for the moment but perhaps a plurilateral agreement with a smaller group of countries maybe the eu and japan working together might create some momentum that in the longer term could get us to a multilateral agreement but there's certainly a recognition that the current multilateral rules on subsidies at the wto aren't working
0: Okay. Okay. So one of one of the reasons Europeans are so exercised by the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, is because they fear European companies are going to up sticks and move over. Um, four weeks ago, one of our one of our um, guests, who is extremely well plugged in 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 European circles in Brussels, said that she you know she she sees indications that that is happening. Um, I'm interested to hear. Your view, and I just, I suppose, bring to people's attention, just looking at the uh, number of manufacturing jobs, the the quarterly data uh, in the EU, and over the course of last year, uh, actually manufacturing jobs rose in the EU, which was surprising, given the energy shock uh, amongst others. Uh, And so people might be interested here, there are 32.3 million people working in the manufacturing sector. Uh, in Europe, which happens to be 2 million more than 10 years ago. So all of this talk about deindustrialization, it may be coming, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. But that's by way of me just broadcasting a, an earlier tweet. Stephanie, uh, wh- wh- what do you think about the risk to European companies and jobs going uh, westward?
1: I made two points. The first is that it's not really a zero-sum game, right? They, there could be EU companies operating in Europe and EU companies operating in America. So it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. They might, companies might try to hedge their bets and hedge their investments. The US rules around these green subsidies have pretty strict regulations about what the supply chain can look like. And so that may leave some companies with an incentive to stay in the EU or to be in the EU because they won't have to rejig their supply chains at such a fast pace as they would be required to do in the US if they want to take advantage of their subsidies. The second point I would make is that subsidies, in my research and other research, we find subsidies only have a marginal effect on location decisions. So in my research in Norway, for example, I found no evidence that any firms had reallocated in order to win subsidies. This is a country where the government is actively trying to disperse business activity If you move to a remote region of the country, you'd have a much better chance of winning a subsidy. No firms were doing it. They were not relocating to take advantage of subsidies. In the UK, there's good research that shows a hundred thousand pound subsidy only influences the probability of a firm relocating in a particular area by one percentage point. So when firms are making these investment decisions, they're looking at a lot of factors, highly educated workforce, Good, good structure, good infrastructure, political stability. There's lots of factors that go into location decisions. Subsidies may matter, but really only at the margin.
0: Okay, okay. That's, that's a fascinating insight. Um, uh, really interesting. Uh, so maybe maybe we're overall too worried about this in Europe and the competitive threat from America. There's also uh, some chatter picking up in the, in the U.S. media that these subsidies are quite onerous to get. Uh, so, you know, a lot of hoops have to be jumped through. Is there the old issue of businesses just saying, look, we're better off doing our business than going to the government and getting handouts?
1: I certainly think that's part of the story. And I'd make two points. First, the subsidies that have been promised under the Inflation Reduction Act are about the same magnitude of existing EU subsidies. Right? There's There's not that much more money being made available in the US than in the EU. The difference is that the EU money is a bit more fragmented. It's coming from multiple different pots. But on average, the amount of money is is about the same. So the consumer uh, subsidy for EV vehicles, for example, about $7,500 in the US. Estimates suggest that on average in EU countries, it's about $6,500. So there's not that much more money going into it in the US. The argument has been to date that, oh, it's easier to get in the US. And so that's my second point. I think that The structure of these subsidies looks a little different by necessity. So they're often tax credits in the US. And so, you know, that's much more automatic, even though it may be difficult to qualify. Once you do qualify, it's right there, right? It's dollar for dollar providing a, a break on the tax bill that you have to pay. Whereas of course in the EU, it's difficult to provide those types of subsidies because taxes remain a national competency. So there is a difference in how they're provided, but the dollar amounts, the value of these are really similar.
0: Just, just before coming on, um, I read uh, a leader in this week's Economist on Texas, um, not, not your home state, I, I gather, but um, and, and just how, saying how successful it, it, it had been. Um, there is, you know, I think people maybe sometimes in Europe forget that the U.S. doesn't have a state aids regime as as we do in Europe. So in some ways, we have a more powerful federal structure in that area than, than the United States does. Um, but y- your point about, you know, taxes being pretty marginal in, in terms of location decisions, does that hold for the United States as well within the United States, amongst the states?
1: Oh, that's a great question we do see evidence that states are competing with one another to get firms to relocate to their areas. And so the the most um, canonical example of this is competition between the state of Kansas and the state of Missouri. So they share a common labor market in the city of Kansas City. So many of the factors that that firms look at to invest are held constant, right? They have a common labor market, common set of um, education, common infrastructure, but there's a state border running through the city. And so Kansas and Missouri have long engaged in a subsidy war where they spent millions and millions of taxpayer dollars to get firms to move you know, two blocks a mile across the state border. So in that case, it has been hugely um, impactful. There's been a lot of wasted taxpayer dollars, but it's because all of these other factors that firms look at have actually been held constant. Even think about moving uh, you know, Boeing from Washington down to um, South Carolina. Again, the national politics are constant. So in that situation where you're holding national politics constant, the education system constant, the infrastructure investment constant, then these subsidy wars matter at the margin, and they're hugely destructive. And I think this is the biggest challenge that the EU faces when they're thinking about how to respond to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is to ensure that they don't allow these state-on-state subsidy wars to develop within the EU. Because one of the most successful parts of the EU state aid rules to date have been to stop that and stop this sort of wasteful competition that we see in the United States between states.
0: So no better person to ask than a political scientist. Is is, is something I'm sure if you you look at look at things more from the perspective of politicians than 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 from uh, corporate executives or or as I do I suppose as an economist more from the macro picture. But in terms of the motives of politicians and you, you, your book is discusses this extensively. You know, to, to what how big are the gains? Um, you know, well, first of all, are, are is subsidization primarily motivated by a real strategic gain? I'm gathering maybe not from some things you've said earlier, or is it primarily motivated by uh, pork barrel politics, simply buying off interest groups and uh, trying to get reelected?
1: So certainly there are some economic logic to some subsidies. I wouldn't deny that, but a huge part of the story is political. There are political incentives to provide subsidies And in some countries, these incentives are huge. And so you see some countries where the best way to get elected, to get reelected, to retain office is to provide subsidies to particular industries that are located in particular regions. So in France, for example, we see this game where the politicians are going. There's a great quote in my book where this MP said, "You know, my constituency is a garden and my job is to go to Paris and get fertilizer for my garden. And that fertilizer is subsidies. And so the idea is that in order to appease your constituents, you're going to the national government and getting subsidies for your constituents. And if that is not optimal for taxpayers or not optimal for the country or not optimal for the reloc- the location of capital or workers, too bad, right? That's your political incentives. But that's not true in all countries. So in some countries, the, the way you get elected, the way you win office, the way you stay in power incentivizes politicians and, and uh, parties To focus on broader national issues. So in Sweden, for example, the way you win office is different, and you see the Minister of Industry coming out and saying when Saab was in trouble, he came out and said, look, taxpayers don't elect me to fund out loss-making auto industries. They elect me to fund nurses, to fund education, to fund skills, to fund to grow the economy. And so there are different incentives in different countries depending on how politicians are elected, but a huge part of the story, a lot of these subsidies are pork barrel politics being spent in order to win elections.
0: Uh, I, I laughed out loud when, when that part of your book that you quoted of the French politician and the parliament, or Paris being the garden and the fertilizer would been brought home. Every single member of parliament here in Ireland, where I know you spent a, a bit of time in the past, uh, could say the same thing. So our... our, our um, our form of list system PR also seems to to uh, to generate similar incentives. Um... I thought if you have any um, countries where those sort of politics don't work, obviously the uh, rising superpower being the country I have most in mind, but in, wh- where electoral politics doesn't come into it, to what extent in, in any of your research have you looked at countries like China, the authoritarian Asian states, uh, the allocation of subsidies, and are they more effective in those states because they're, they're not as subject to political pressure?
1: That's a great question. I just started doing research on subsidies in China. And there you're right that a lo- it's much more driven by a pure economic logic, but there's still politics. And so part of the idea is of staying in power in China is continuing to grow the economy. And how do you grow the economy? You have to put subsidies in the right places. I also find that one of the ways in which subsidies are targeted in China is in response to protests. Mm. So unlike in a democratic system where you're targeting subsidies in order to win votes, What I find in China is that the central government is targeting subsidies geographically in order to contain protests. So even there, in a very state-led, non-democratic setting, you still see a role for politics, explicit politics in subsidy provision. And I think that's really fascinating that even here where they have total carte blanche to use subsidies for economic reasons, to grow the economy, there's still some subsidies that are being targeted for what I would argue are really political reasons, in order to tamp down protests, to contain protests, to so that they don't threaten the CCP.
0: Okay, interesting, a protest point, because uh, just to share a, an ongoing example here, um, effective building blocks uh, were sold and used in the construction of houses in one particular part of the country. And the government has caved in to compensating people, and this is individuals rather than companies, um, to rebuild their homes. That, Gargantuan expense to the taxpayer, and that was purely for fear that they would lose seats in the constituencies involved. So it just brings echoes of of protests generating um, uh, transfers in that sense, but of course slightly different as as it was households rather than than companies. Um, Coming back to Europe, uh, one of the things I suppose in Ireland we're, and small, other smaller member states are worried about is that um, subsidization will benefit the bigger member states. You know, if you look at sort of the Airbuses and those big uh, capital-intensive industries or industries that, that just require scale, that it's the bigger countries that will benefit at the expense of the smaller countries, the erosion of the state aid, aid framework uh, will, will erode the, um, the benefits of the single market for smaller countries. How do you see that, uh, that, that, that issue?
1: I think that's a, a really serious fear, and I think that's one of the most difficult issues that the EU faces in trying to put together a response or a reaction to the US Inflation Reduction Act. So we see already that there's big variation in who's providing subsidies after the EU state aid rules were relaxed in response to COVID and in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So after that happened, we see total spending go up, so everybody's spending more, but we also see a lot more variation in who's providing subsidies. So in this post-COVID era, when the state aid rules were relaxed, 53% of the subsidies provided in the EU came from Germany. 77% came from Germany and France combined. So these are big economies that have the ability, the resources to provide subsidies. And there's just huge variation. There's always been variation. And this is was the puzzle in my book. Why do we see European states that are bound by the same EU state aid rules spending different amounts of their budget on subsidies. But that variation seems to be even greater once those rules are relaxed. So in that post-COVID era, we see Ireland spending 0.23% of their GDP on subsidies, Poland spending 3.8% of their GDP per subsidies. And the variation across all member states was 1% of GDP. So that's a huge amount of variation in how states are responding to the relaxation of EU state aid rules. And so I do think it's a really serious challenge to think about how smaller states can respond in ways that don't disadvantage them in contrast to the larger states.
0: And just offhand in the numbers, and I understand if you don't have the f- just figures in your head, but in, in terms of an increase in over the COVID period, has that increase Proportionately, being bigger and bigger member states than smaller member states. Do you, do you know that offhand?
1: I don't know that offhand. I'm sorry.
0: Good. I must might, may follow up on that one uh, at, in another uh, in another event. Um, more more generally, just clearly, COVID led to the suspension of state aid rules in Europe. It it was just uh, really, really hard to exaggerate the the impact. So maybe if we could just look at the trend in the amounts given out in subsidies up to. 2019, pre-COVID. Just talk us through any sort of trends in the in, in the data and the figures that you, you noticed up to that time.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, COVID blew things up, right? So from pre-COVID to post-COVID, spending on subsidies increased by 233% in the G7 countries. So absolutely, COVID was a huge part of the story. But even after the end of some of these big uh, subsidies, we still see subsidy spending being much more elevated post-COVID than pre-COVID. And even before COVID, we saw uh, subsidy spending increasing really across the board. In Europe, in the US, in China, we saw Chinese subsidy spending increase to such an extent that we think, we estimate they're spending 1.5% of their GDP on subsidies. And this was really before COVID. So this is a huge amount of money. We see also before the COVID period the increased use of subsidies. So there's good data by researchers out of Switzerland that show that subsidies are now the most frequently used barrier to trade in a plurality of countries. So rather than using tariffs or other non-tariff barriers, it's subsidies that governments are reaching for in their policy toolkit. So this is an interesting trend. I, I was joking earlier that you know, I wrote this book on subsidies, it was published in 2018. My editors were like, oh, we can't have a book on uh, subsidies. But just right then, we were starting to see this increase pre-COVID. And in my book, I speculated about, you know, we're going to see more and more subsidies coming. And that's exactly what we've seen. Mm -hmm. So they're more frequent, they're better funded, they're picking up a larger chunk of government's budgets.
0: Um, Tell me, what's your evaluation in terms of that big increase in subsidies to keep businesses going during the pandemic. To what extent has that bolstered, in my view, a a trend towards interventionism? I think maybe perhaps the, the bad sides of interventionism in the post-war period of, is is being forgotten. Maybe, probably, uh, we went too far in favour of just, oh, it must be the market and government can't get anything wrong. And it, it's definitely, it was, even before the pandemic, it's it was, swim, it was swinging back, in, in my view, and I'd be very interested to get your view on that. But to what extent do you think perceived successes of subsidisation during the pandemic has bolstered that trend, if it, indeed you agree it is a trend pre, uh, pre-COVID?
1: I agree it was a trend pre-COVID, and I agree that that's bolstered the support for state intervention and subsidies. We saw how critical they were during COVID. We've seen how important they've been in energy support, energy price support it, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So all of a sudden, there's a sense that there is a role for state intervention. There is a role for subsidies. And particularly when it comes to the green economy, it's quite hard to make the argument to say, Well, subsidies are bad because they violate WTO rules, but they may save the planet. I mean, that's quite a difficult argument to make. And so there are these really compelling arguments in favor of state support and state subsidies in the moment, not only keeping people alive during COVID, keeping the economy during COVID, but potentially changing the climate and ensuring that we don't go down this very destructive route that destroys the, the
0: environment. It kind of just gets me thinking, you know, is is ideology less of a factor? Uh, you know, in the past, there were those who were very statist and almost sort of instinctively wanted a statist uh, view, and then there were the free marketeers who sort of didn't want any state at all. I'm just kind of thinking what you're saying. Maybe, maybe ideology is just not as important these days. Um, it, is, that, is that possible?
1: It's a great research question. I think that that would be a great study to look, particularly at the individual level, right? How do individuals' opinions about state subsidies change or not change in response to the crisis and is ideology less of a strong predictor? At the elite level or at the government level, the same characters are on the same side of the divide, right? So who's coming out to say we should further loosen state aid rules in response to the U.S. subsidy program? You have France saying loosen them. You have Sweden saying no. And these are the same positions that they've held for decades. For over a decade, over a decade ago, France was saying, we have to change the EU state aid rules are obsolete. They're strangling our industries. You know, they're, they're gonna be the downfall of Rome. France is still taking that same position. Nothing has changed. Now they just have this sort of political cover provided by the US to say, we need to change our state aid rules. On the other hand, Sweden has long said, we're not in the game of providing industrial subsidies. We don't think this is a good use of taxpayer dollars. And they continue to say, this is not what we should do. We should not liberalize EU state aid rules. So at least at the government level, we see the same alignment that we've always seen. But I, it's an interesting question. I think you might be right. Maybe at the bottom-up level, there's a change in opinion or support for subsidies.
0: But on a country level, I detect a strong shift in Germany. Mm. Do, do you, would you would you share that, or do you do you think I, that's an overstatement? It seems to me the French, the Germans have become French in this debate. But <laughs> you're the expert in this area.
1: No, no, you're right. I mean, Germany definitely spent a lot of money in that post-COVID area. Once the the state aid rules were loosened, they took advantage of the extra space they had and they filled that with subsidies. I mean, Germany has always been a bit of a, a puzzle for me and my research. I never, in my book and you know, I struggled with where do they fit? Are they on the French side or are they on Sweden side? And there are examples in the past where they said, you know, we're not gonna bail out our our um, tool industry. We're not gonna bail out some of our industries. So they do have this past of saying, you know, we're, we're, gonna, sub, we're gonna focus on building education and vocational skills in universities rather than supporting particular industries. And you're right, now we see them coming under increasing pressure, particularly from their auto industry, and they seem much more willing to engage with that and say, yes, we need to protect this. So perhaps you're right, there may be some shift in Germany. I think Germany's always been a bit of a mixed example, in part because of the mixed incentives that the government faces, given the way that they're elected and how they're put into power in the first place by voters.
0: Okay, okay. I'd love to go. I think we could do an entire um, episode on on that real detail in your book in terms of the incentives uh, that politicians face depending on the kind of electoral system as I mentioned to you it's kind of a pet theory of mine that a lot of what Ireland gets wrong uh, can be in a governmental basis can be attributed to, to our form of electoral system but that's for another day uh, a question that comes to mind on the discussion of Germany, and I this might, I don't want to put you on the spot because it's 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 one I've never even thought of myself. but is there a different a difference within the lander in Germany in terms of views on subsidization? any 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 researcher thoughts on that?
1: That's a great question. And there is. but the only reason we know that there's variation in subsidies across the lander in Germany is because they report them. So this is an interesting. Puzzle. I think with Germany, they are very transparent in their subsidies, far more transparent than many other countries. Many countries don't report their subsidies, even those that are required to by their membership in the WTO. They just don't report their subsidies. They provide no information on them. In contrast, in Germany, even at the lander level, there's very detailed documentation on what subsidies are provided, to whom, how much are they getting. And so we do see variation across states in Germany, where some are much more engaged in the subsidy game, provide many more subsidies, devote a larger share of their budget to subsidies than other states. I don't have an explanation for why that is true, but we certainly do see that variation across states in Germany.
0: Okay, Okay. another one, a difficult one that only comes to me now, and I didn't flag it to you in, in advance. Um, and it's probably not known by anyone yet, but in, in terms of subsidies to businesses during the pandemic and subsidies to households, uh, they clearly had a different uh, different effect. Um, I, I think generally both were seen to be the right thing to do in terms of uh, bolstering maintaining demand from the consumer side and protecting jobs and avoiding scarring on the business side. But do, do, can, can you give any insights in, into any research that's been done to date on that? Or is it just too early to say?
1: I think it's too early to say right now. I mean, we do know that scarring is a serious problem and that if there is a a job loss or an unemployment spell in someone's lifetime, it will affect the trajectory of their earnings and employment for the rest of their lives. So to the extent that these subsidies stopped that, that initial unemployment period or that initial job loss, they would have a huge positive effect at the individual level but I think it's just too early to have that kind of uh, research yet. But again, another great research project. Thanks.
0: And look, look, uh, something I must share with uh, uh, um, something from your book that um, with the loosening of state age rules around the middle of the last decade, generally driven by France. And uh, what I didn't know, uh, and a fascinating point was that the the uh, cultural exception the French uh, are so fond of of, of, uh, of promoting was actually shared by the UK. To uh, bolster their own uh, film industry, which I completely missed, and uh, w- was a fascinating insight. And, and on that, on the subject of of your cur- current country of residence, um, how do you see the subsidy subsidy situation evolving in the UK now that they're out of the EU? I know within the uh, the withdrawal agreement, with, within the, with the um, the, the EU UK. Um, Framework. There are limits to state aid rules, but how much of an impact will they have in keeping Britain within the EU framework on state aid rules? Do you think it's going to change things? And obviously, um, you know, how much of a capacity is there for the UK to make itself competitive? Something that we would be very worried about over here if they were to uh, to use that to our detriment.
1: Yeah, the UK worked really hard on constructing their own subsidy control regime uh, after they left the uh, EU. I was involved in that process and and, uh, worked with them on it. Many of the elements of the new UK subsidy control regime will be familiar to people who are familiar with the EU state aid rules. Um, uh, Many things have been renamed, but the logic uh, behind many of the rules is very similar, and the incentives that they seek to create are very similar. I think um, as the EU did, they tried really hard to disincentivize competition between the four nations. So they wanted to ensure that you know Scotland wasn't competing with uh, Wales and engaging in some sort of subsidy war to compete over firms. And so they worked really hard on that part of the subsidy control regime. They also worked really hard to create block exemptions for green investments and green technology. Again, that looks similar to some of the things that are included in the EU state aid rules. And so I think that in many ways, it's business as usual. There was a concerted effort to try to make it easier and faster to get support from the UK government versus the EU. That's often a complaint that we hear about EU state aid that it's just bureaucratically difficult, right? You have you have firms that help companies get these subsidies which is one reason why we tend to see a bias in EU subsidies towards the big players, right? They have the capacity and the expertise and the, you know, to to fill out the forms and to get the subsidies. It's harder for newer companies to do that. So the UK system designed to try to make it a bit easier. I think we're still watching to see how that plays out in practice. But I think that there are definitely efforts to try to ensure that subsidies are good value for money and that they're not throwing money over declining industries or industries that are in trouble. But I also, my sense is that the UK is not interested in engaging in picking winners and sort of trying to identify new startup tech and plugging a lot of money into them. That's sort of not what the subsidy control regime is designed to do. That may happen in other areas via universities and university funding, but that's not gonna come through the subsidy program uh, in the
0: UK. so on the future of that, and contradicting my earlier point about ideology, under a Labour government, do you see possibility of that changing? Any insights into how the Labour Party in the UK views the area of subsidies, or is there is it not really something that's fleshed out that much in policy detail?
1: They've definitely talked to me uh, about it, and um, I don't think they have a clear policy, but I think the way the subsidy control regime is currently constructed and, and exists in legislation is that there's a lot of leeway. And and that that may be good because it gives the government a lot of leeway in in setting their own priorities and identifying where they want money to flow to. Uh, It could be bad, right? If you think that there's a new government and the priorities are gonna change and firms can't count on the subsidies being there or the investment being there. So I think that there's a lot of leeway for the government in power. And potentially when we see a change in government, we may see a change in spending priorities.
0: Okay, so from shifting from London to Brussels, DG competition, um, how would you evaluate how it's changed over time in terms of its effectiveness in implementing the rules? And I I suppose, again, from an Irish perspective, the the Apple state aid ruling is quite quite a contentious one here, as you you might imagine. Um, Has that and other setbacks that the Commission has got from the Court of Justice, has that undermined its own self-confidence, its own capacity, its own willingness to take state aid cases?
1: Hmm. I don't think so. I mean, I think that they're there's I, I think they're sort of increasingly careful, right, in applying the rules and watching the rules. But I also think they're increasingly. Not activists, that, no, not the right word, but they're. What states used to get away with, they certainly won't get away with anymore. And so I think they're they're very careful. And there's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of scrutiny. And I think that scrutiny has only increased over time. And so, you know, when I go back and look at some of these historic cases, it's very interesting what was deemed to be appropriate and and how that's changed over time.
0: Okay, You're, you're really putting the insights into this insights series um that that would have been exactly the opposite of what mm-hmm. I would have felt as a non-expert so really good to hear uh, somebody who's really informed about this um to be able to give that insight um in in terms of the future of uh state aid rules in particular in uh, at EU level um obviously you know as you mentioned earlier before we came on air that they they have been they remain suspended until I think 2025 you said. Um, so that that really does change things. That'll be half a decade of suspended state aid rules. Um, where do you see things going after 2025?
1: That's the 10 million dollar question. So, if this sort of new temporary framework is accepted, which the commission has proposed, the longest it would last is till 2025. And so, think about the contrast in terms of the timing with the United States Inflation Reduction Act, where that's extended out till 2032. So you have guaranteed subsidies for a decade versus maybe some subsidies that will be allowed until 2025. And then after that, you don't know. And so I think that has to be a challenge for firms when they're making investment decisions or location decisions, temporary changes to state aid rules till 2025 versus guaranteed subsidies to 2032. It's, it's a very different timeframe.
0: Okay, good, good, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie, it has been a you've really put given so many uh, insights. I think that we, we, we all of us who are interested in this subject can take away from today's uh, today's insights. Uh, so many thanks, and uh, I think you you, you might expect uh, 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 another invite back in in some time to talk about. In, in greater detail, both what we've spoken about today and how things have evolved, but also issues like uh, procurement, which, as you say, uh, is, is very difficult to discuss this whole area without getting into the procurement piece. So definitely, uh, definitely want to look at in the future. So again, thanks on my own behalf for, for agreeing to join today, and on, the, on behalf of the institute, I'm sure it's been uh, invaluable to all our all our members. Um, it's certainly been a fascinating uh, 45 minutes. So thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Have a good afternoon, everybody.